Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, and I'm here with Sarah Masarek, and today we have with us three of our library ladies, Jeanette Toulis, Sandy Hall, and Sherry Early, and Tanya Arnold from BiblioGuides is with us. Is Tanya here? That would be shocking to have Tanya here, wouldn't it? I, I know. I don't, I don't know how she got here. <laughs> you know, I just show up in random places. You never know. Oh, Tanya, we are so glad that you are here with us as usual, especially when we are talking about Landmark Books, because Landmark Books is something that you, Tanya, and we are really passionate about, and so are our library ladies. This is one of the very first places where we all had some significant overlap. It was it was kind of the kindred spirit moment, I think, between us that we all recognize the value of these books and want to um, want to make sure that the world knows how good these books are and how worth pursuing they are. So friends, we welcome you to this special episode in our landmark series. Thus far, we've recorded about half a dozen episodes about specific landmark books, Combat Nurses, Medical Corps Heroes, Captain Kidd, who's a pirate, sorry, Tanya, and uh, Adolf Hitler. (laughs) Sorry, friends, if you don't know what I'm referring to, you really need to check out the Captain Kidd episode. It's a fantastic episode, and we fight, so that's really fun. (laughs) It truly is, and then you'll understand that he's not a pirate once you go listen to it. (laughs) Or not. (laughs) As Christy famously said, he was too incompetent to be a pirate. (laughs) As a pirate. As As a a pirate, pirate. yes. (laughs) An incompetent pirate, perhaps. So friends, what we decided at this point was it was time to do less of the deep dive on a particular book and more of a survey for a number of books in the limited number of episodes that we can sustain on any one topic, we wanted to make sure that we offered you some of the best of the best. So we asked our library ladies to divide down the middle. Half are here today to talk about the American landmark books, and the other half are coming to talk about the world landmark books. So all the Christie fans out there, hold your breath. You'll have to wait and see if she's bringing another pirate book or not, as is her style. So today, we have Sherry and Sandy and Jeanette here to talk about one of their favorite American landmark books. So if you're a little confused, American, world, what's the difference? Why are you dividing these up? Tanya, can you tell us a little bit about the landmark series? Just a thumbnail sketch as to why we differentiate between world and American and how people can find out more? about which ones are which? Yeah, sure. So there is a total of 185 books total in the series, and that is divided among American history ones and world history ones. There are less in the world history category. You can come to BiblioGuides. We have a free download, which you can put in the show notes, of a chronological list that will tell you which ones are in print, which ones are on Internet Archive, on Kindle, and on Audible. And we keep that updated. So that is a really great resource for families looking to see which ones they can easily find and access and also maybe read them along with their history studies. And then I think the other thing that's kind of fun about this particular episode is that there are 185 books and none of us here have read all 185 books. 
and we've each read different ones. And so it's kind of fun to be able to highlight the ones that we've read and loved. I haven't read any of the three from today, actually. I've heard great things about them, but I haven't read them. So I'm excited to learn more about the individual titles. And I hope mamas are excited to hear about them too. And then either read them or be able to hand them off to their child as needed. So I just think it's it's interesting to be able to talk about them individually, how they can stand on their own and not just this broad, the landmarks are great without being able to speak to each one and the power of each one individually. Exactly that. And one of the other things that I love about these episodes is that Mamas, we want you to be able to read these if you want to. That that's what this is here for is to encourage you in that process because this is these are really great. We are enjoying reading these for our own self-education. But if you are really short on time, that's what these podcasts are for also. If you just need to preview, that is part of what we're trying to help you to do so that you can preview and decide yes or no for my family or my child now or ever or at another time. So the other thing is, I just want to amplify what Tanya said about her printable list. It's fantastic, mamas. The list is free. It's linked from our website to their website, or you can go directly to their website. We don't care where you go to get it. We just want you to get it. Print it out. Put it on a clipboard. Hang it in your library so that you can check off which ones you've read. I have one printed for each child. Now, I also have for each child inside of Guides their own reading lists so they can go in and mark them off. But sometimes it's just nice to have that handy visual reminder. And it's really sweet because that list has all the different printings. And so you can check off if you have it in audio, you can check off if you have a vintage copy, you can check off if you have a reprint. It's just nice for just a visual reminder of your inventory. So with that, each of our library ladies is going to give the forgotten book type treatment to their book. So in our forgotten book episodes, these ladies come and bring beautiful books. They give us a little summary. We may have a couple of questions for them or a little conversation. And then we move on to the next library lady to do the whole thing again. And so this way, by the end of the episode, you're going to learn about three beautiful landmark books. And if you head over to the show notes, you'll find links for those books and links for all the other things we talk about. So thanks for being here. And let's get started. So Sherry, let's start with you. What landmark book did you bring today and why did you bring it? What do you what do you like about it? I had been wanting to read Evangeline and the Acadians by Robert Tallant for a good while because I live in Houston, which is adjacent to Louisiana and Cajun culture and all things Cajun. And so I know people who consider themselves to be Acadians or Cajuns, if you want to call them that. And it's become one of my very favorite landmarks of all time. Wow. And, you know, Sherry, at the beginning, Tanya said that none of us have read all of them, which is at this point true. But you are making a solid effort to make that untrue. I'm trying to read one a week. And and that's I mean, if you're like me and you're retired, okay, that's pretty doable because they are still children's books. Mm-hmm. They're not 400-page tome on Evangeline and the Acadians. It's, it's a doable thing. And I've been trying to read and review one a week, and I'm fairly on track. But I've been trying this year. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is just marvelous. And I've enjoyed your reviews as they've come up. I know that you write reviews and Sandy writes reviews. And so we will be linking reviews for all of these books, friends. It's always helpful for people, I think, sometimes to see uh, see information like that in writing. Yes. Well, especially if you have library patrons, because, of course, with your lending library, you have patrons who are trying to decide which books to check out. And having a quick review makes it easier for them to determine, mm-hmm. yeah, this is a good fit for us or this is not. So Thank I you. love that. So, Sherry, tell us about Evangeline and the Acadians. Evangeline, of course, is the title of a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who's also one of my favorite poets. It's a fictional story. Evangeline was not really a was not a real person. She was based on stories that mm. Longfellow heard about the Acadians. But Robert Talent, who was a very well-known Louisiana um, historian and English professor. He wrote it, you know, how you read a fiction book and then you want to go and find out how much of this is really true, how much of this is is made up. Yeah. The poem, which is really a fictional story, it's a very long narrative poem. It's a story about Evangeline and her fiancé, Gabriel, and how they get separated Um, when the English decide to basically forcibly relocate the Acadians from Canada. And that part of the story Mm. is a true thing. The the English did decide in the mid-1700s, about 1754 or 5, to relocate these French-speaking people who were in their midst because they were afraid that Hmm. the French speaking people would try to ally with the Indians. So they decided to just take all of them Hmm. and relocate them. I knew a little bit about this because I read Evangeline a long time ago and I read a little bit about the Acadians and things like that. So I thought that the British took all these Acadian people. Acadia is what the French people called Nova Scotia. And then the English named it Nova Scotia. Okay. Anyway, I thought that they took them all and shipped them down to Louisiana because that's where we know about Acadians being nowadays. But that's not what happened. They took them all and put them on boats. But they dropped them off all along the uh, coast into other British colonies. They wanted to spread them out. And then they huh. took some of them over to England, huh. <laughs> where they didn't even know the, la- the language, these oh, French-speaking wow. people. And then they took some of them and left them on the coast of France. Uh, just, they just spread them all over the place. Wow. Uh, some of them ended up in Boston. Some wow. of them ended up in Maine. Some of them ended up in um, the Southern colonies. This mm. was at the time, this 1755, like I said, when the American colon, the colonies were still part of England. So they spread them all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so when I read that, I thought, <laughs> what happened? How did they all get, then how did, did they end up in Louisiana? And the book tells about that too. So uh, <laughs> it's really a fascinating story. 
and he tells it so well. It's um, it's not fictionalized. Mm. It's not like made up, you know, having made up characters mm-hmm. like Evangeline and Gabriel or whatever. But it is sure. enlivened. Yeah, perfect example of a living book because he he makes oh. um, the scenes and the characters and the things that they were going through really come alive. Yeah, an amazing story and a sort of a sad story, and then it it ends on a yeah more or less happy note because he goes into the heritage of the Cajun people in Louisiana and what they've done there and the culture that they established there and famous people who've come from that background and things like that. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's a wonderful story. Oh, I have, I have to tell you when I was collecting the landmark books, I have a very incomplete set. I've never been able to achieve a full set. Um, at, at a certain point when they started getting very highly priced, I decided that my kids needed other resources more than they needed me spending 50, 60, $70 on a book. And so, but I, something inside of me propelled me to seek that one out. And I didn't even know very much about it, but I, I sought it out and I prized it when I found it and I have it on my shelf, but I've never read it, Sherry. So I'm so glad you brought this book today and told us this story because this one's now at the top of my list. I, there's something in this story that my soul is begging for, I can tell. Well, the good news is that it has been republished. A small publisher in Louisiana called Pelican, I believe. And Mm. I think Mm. another reason that I was very taken by the book, and that is that it came to me as I was reading it, that it's not just a history of the Acadians, but it's a history of the uh, a story of the whole history of southern louisiana and even southeast texas yeah i was thinking as i read that several of these landmark books could be the spine for your state history set yes i was thinking the same thing as you were saying that yes robert talent who like like i said was a Louisiana historian and English professor and very well known in Louisiana. Uh, one's called the Louisiana Purchase, and the other one is about Jean Lafitte, mm-hmm. the pirate. <laughs> We're back to pirates again. <laughs> and um, the other one is Evangeline and the Acadians. And if you took those three books and made them the spine of your Louisiana state history study, that would be an amazing study. And I think you could do this for most yeah. most of the states in the Union. You found the right. Or at least regions at a, at a minimum. What a marvelous suggestion. Thank you. So that'd be kind of fun to look at and figure out which books could go to which states or which regions. And you could, we should work on that. That'd be fun. <laughs> well, and Tanya, they're all tagged. Aren't they by their state and their region and biblio guides? 
Yeah, they are. And we're also starting to tag a lot more if it is Louisiana history, things like mm-hmm. that, so people could do state histories. That's exactly right. Another interesting thing, I love everything you've shared, Sherry, is that he also wrote We Were There with Jean Lafitte at New Orleans. Yes. So you could add a We Were There book in. And I was looking into him a little bit. There's not a lot about him online because he passed away when he was about 48 years old. So he, in his prime, right, he could have written a lot more, but he kind of drifted into writing. It wasn't his first career. And then because he was born in New Orleans, he was a writer of that area and he collected folk tales of the area and other stories. And it was really important to him. So I think this is just another um, like key aspect of the vision that the editors of the landmarks had to find the right people to tell the right stories. And so he was probably the perfect person to tell these stories of the region of Louisiana and tell it powerfully. So I, I love that. I've had this book on my like to read list as well for a really long time because I don't honestly even really know what it's about right. until now. <laughs> so I'm excited about it. <laughs> and I love that it has this symbiotic relationship with Evangeline. So like if you read Evangeline, the poem, I don't know, I'm old enough that we actually read Evangeline in school. I don't think they do that anymore. But anyway, <laughs> mm. um, if you read Evangeline, the poem, then you might want to read you know, this book. And if you read this book, I think it will make you want to go and read the poem. I haven't read the landmark book either, but the Evangeline poem has been special to me because um, my grandfather, who was born in 1906, used to just be able to recite Mm. poetry and stories that he had heard on the radio when he was a kid. And just sit there and entertain us with this. Now, he never did tell me the whole poem, but I just always remembered that he would just start off, this is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlocks. And I don't remember how far he could go, but I thought, oh, I want to read that poem. I want to read that poem. (laughs) And I didn't until I was an adult because I was not taught to read poetry. Mm. So to sit down and read a story that's told in that poetic style was kind of tedious because I didn't, you know, come on, let's just get on with it. Yeah, where's the action? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But when I did, then I thought, oh, you know, I wish that I had known about that Mm -hmm. when I was younger. And, Mm -hmm. And I also wish that someone had developed my memory Mm -hmm. when I was young. Mm -hmm. And I just, rather than being an ad for the book, it's just, it's more an ad for memorize poetry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have your kids memorize poetry or scripture or anything good that you want them to remember for the rest of their lives, because he was telling me these things 60 years after he'd been in school. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sherry. I really am excited to know more about this book, and I'm excited to prioritize it. This one sounds great. So Sandy, tell us, what are you bringing today? Why? What, what spoke to you about it? Why do you recommend it? I am talking about Geronimo, Wolf of the Warpath. And I chose this because I don't think we've covered enough of the Native Americans' mm. writings. And I feel like they were ahead of their time mm. in many ways as far as focusing on that aspect of our history. Yeah. So I read this, I read it a very long time ago, so it was nice to read it again this week. Mm. So this landmark book about Native American Geronimo was written by Ralph Moody. He also wrote several of the North Star series books, which I hope someday we will do some reviews of those. Mm -hmm. Some horse books and another landmark book, Kit Carson and the Wild Frontier. 
Most of his books were centered on life in the Old West, so it's no surprise that he was commissioned to write the story of Geronimo. It's interesting to me to note that Moody was 10 years old when Geronimo died. Mm. So their lives did overlap. Yeah, that's wild. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Um, The book has been reprinted by Sterling Point Books, and I do recommend their books. Mm -hmm. They're well done. They're good, sturdy covers, nice margins, um, very readable, and they hold up really well. Well, this book, Geronimo, Wolf of the Warpath, starts out with a historical overview of the events of the West in the times before Geronimo's birth explaining some background to the term Apache, which became the name for Geronimo's tribe. And that might seem like it starts out kind of slow with that before you ever get to the life of Geronimo, but the events of that time period before his birth in 1829 really set the stage for who he became. Yeah, they did. He was reacting to those times. Yes. Mm -hmm. Coronado came into the Southwest after the Spanish had conquered the Aztecs, searching for the rich seven cities of Cibola in about 1540 into Arizona and New Mexico. So gradually, more and more Mexicans moved north over the centuries. Native Americans there fought back by raiding rather than open warfare. They learned quickly they couldn't stand up against a whole line Mm -hmm. of their enemies. They had to do it by raiding, and that is eventually what Geronimo did a lot of. Um, The word Apache sounded like a word for enemy in the Mexican language of the time, Um, so that's what this Native American tribe was then called. Mm. So that's where that word Apache came from. Geronimo was born in 1829, and he died in 1909. His name at birth was G O K L I Y A. But I'm not going to try to pronounce that. <laughs> his father was chief of his tribe, and he trained his son very early for all things to become a chief eventually. He gained skills of hunting, he learned their legends, the medicine man's skills, and how to read the stars. These skills and all this learning made him both admired and hated as he grew. His father died when he was young but his father's instructions never left him, although eventually he used them for bad. Mm -hmm. A white man named Johnson tricked the Apache and massacred 50 of them, Mm -hmm. and now the Apache feared and hated the white man. I feel the book shows clearly the power of a father and a mother and their influence. After his father's death, his mother set him on a road of being a warrior not trusting the Mexicans or the white man ever again, ready to kill, and this was to shape the rest of his life. His mother, wife, and children were killed by Mexicans when he was a young man, and he became hell-bent on revenge for his family's death. As he grew into adulthood, he became the most hunted Native American by white men, including eventually the U.S. government. This is when he gained his notoriety for his cunning trickery, his constant raiding and killing, and his refusal to comply with either the authorities of his people or the white man. Mm -hmm. And it was at this time that he was given the name Geronimo. One biographer wrote that he frightened his Mexican enemies so much that they began yelling Geronimo. Some believe they were screaming the Spanish word for Jerome and that they were pleading for help from St. Jerome 
to escape Geronimo's fury. Mm. Eventually, even the Apaches turned against him and refused to allow him to lead their people as much as Geronimo had always craved that. He had never gained the respect that he wanted. They helped to capture him, actually. The book doesn't go into a lot of detail of the rest of his life until his death. It's interesting to think of the events of American history that touched his life in some way. He lived through the Mexican War, the time of westward expansion, the Cochise War, the Apache Wars, the California Gold Rush, the Civil War and its aftermath, the American Industrial Revolution, and into the 20th century. All of these events shaped his life and touched his life in some way. As I read the book, I noticed that Moody was careful to tell of Native Americans who were good and honest, as well as those who chose to follow Geronimo's murderous treachery. Moody also tells of white men who could be trusted to be fair in the treatment of Native Americans and those who were unfair, as well as the American government's often unjust treatment of them. Mm -hmm. The book was written in 1958, when most books presented Native Americans as illiterate, base savages. So Moody was really ahead of his time in that way. He does refer to them as Indians, which was typical of the time period in which he wrote. Mm -hmm. Even Geronimo himself called himself an Indian in his autobiography, which was published in 1906. The last paragraph of the book says, While Geronimo cannot be honored as a hero, he will always stand as a landmark in American history. He was the last Indian leader who tried, through warfare, to turn back the tide of white civilization. Mm -hmm. So I just love how he ends that. I love how he uses the term landmark (laughs) in this landmark book. Yes. (laughs) Um, It was was well, very well written. Not quite as narrative as perhaps some of the other landmarks, because there's a lot of background information that he has to give and explain. Right. Um, but it, it is still just so captivating and so well written. I read like 90% of it in one evening too late. <laughs> we actually listened to the audio of it at dinner time every night for a week. There is an audio? Yeah. Yeah. So my family and I listened to the Audible every night at dinner for a week. And we did Riders of the Pony Express the same way. With the Sterling Point books, that's an excellent series where they grabbed from multiple authors and multiple series to put it together. But they are out of print. Mm -hmm. So so you can find quite a few used copies of those. So it makes it still pretty readily accessible. But those audibles that they have are still always accessible. And considered in print because there's – And considered in print. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so if you're looking to add to your audible library, that's a really great option. Mm -hmm. So friends, one of the things that's great about Sandy's book is that it was reprinted. So it's a landmark book that was reprinted by Sterling Point. And Sterling Point has done quite a few audibles. So there's a lot of a lot of options for finding some of these books that have been reprinted, but reprinted under different banners and different names. But the wonderful thing that we can tell you now is that the Sterling Point book series is available for viewing on BiblioGuides as well as the landmark. So if you want to just get a picture in your mind of what those covers look like, 
you it might be surprised how many of those you will find at garage sales or at used book sales or in your thrift shops. The Sterling Point books were reprinted much more recently than the landmarks, so there's more of them out there to be found. So in the show notes, we will have links to the BiblioGuide's landmark list and the Sterling Point list. Well, Sandy, I love that you brought a Ralph Moody book because I think that a lot of us in the homeschooling community tend to think of Ralph Moody and think Little Britches, full stop. Or maybe we think Little Britches and Come on Seabiscuit. But we tend to forget that he's written two landmark books. He's also written quite a few other books. And like James Harriet, who is trying to capture the vanishing life of a country vet, you know, where the horse was starting to be retired and replaced by the tractor, Moody and Louis L'Amour were trying to capture the vanishing West. And so just about anything by Moody, I, I say just about because I haven't read everything, but everything I've read of Moody is 100% family-friendly and good food for us. So strongly, passionately recommend that you go and find uh, anything written by Ralph Moody. It's interesting, too, because I think it was Sherry mentioned that um, her author and Ralph Moody did not start writing till later in life. They pursued all kinds of other things before he actually sat down to write and began to write. Well, and that that's a great point, Sandy. And it's a reminder that, friends, if you have not heard the original two-part episode we did on the Landmark series, let us encourage you to go and do that. Of course, there'll be a link to it in the show notes. Because the stories that Tanya told us about how these authors were contracted, how they were found and contracted and included into these series— These are really compelling authors who didn't just set out to be authors. They were people who went and lived really vibrant lives and who also happened to be really gifted storytellers. And so any of the books in these series are really going to be winners for for probably just for that reason alone, if nothing else. I also wanted to share today a little bit about Ralph Moody because Sandy and I were discussing him and we were kind of earlier today messaging back and forth, kind of looking for a quote. And about a few minutes before this episode, I found one, Sandy. So um, this speaks to what you were saying, Sarah, about why we do love Ralph Moody so much and why we do think he would be an author that you could seek out any of his other works. Mm -hmm. And we've quite liked them. This is a quote from Something About the Author, Volume 1. My goal in writing is to leave a record of the rural way of life in this country during the early part of the 20th century and to point up the values of that era, which I feel that we as a people are letting slip away from us. Mm. So that's what you get when you read his stories. You get that sense of that rural way of life, the part that he was embedded in, especially during his childhood. I mean, that's why we love Little right. Witches, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, on our website, we've reviewed the first six of the eight Little Britches books. And Diane, we really have to do those last two just to, because I'm a completist. <laughs> um, but I was... Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was rereading my review of Mary Emma and Company yesterday. At the end of that book, Ralph's childhood really ends. And for families, Diane and I tend to recommend books one through four are excellent food for families. 
but books five through eight are really, Ralph is beginning to then be a young adult. And it's not necessarily the kind of thing you want to read for family read aloud. I personally love all eight of them. I recommend all eight of them. Um, But parents will at least want to do a little looking into those books before you just willy-nilly hand them over to your children. But speaking to what Sandy and Tanya were saying, one of the things I love about Ralph is that even when he's a young adult and he's not at home living in that rural domestic type life, even when he's living in various places doing a a whole variety of different kinds of things, (laughs) he still has these wholesome, traditional, old-fashioned values and principles that usually govern his decision-making, not quite always in shaking the nickel bush. (laughs) But I think that makes him real is that he had a chance to go bad. Yeah. (laughs) He he was out away from his family where nobody would have ever known. Mm -hmm. That's a fact. And his, his early training keeps him going in the right direction. He, he flirts with bad for a minute. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> but he comes out on the right but, but, Right. And that's what I mean is that, yeah. you know, where are you going to find somebody to look up to who's never made any of those mistakes? Amen. Absolutely. Which is interesting when you read his book, Geronimo, because he does talk about all, especially even after his capture and his later adult life, all the poor decisions he made, not just when he was young and hot mm. and fiery over all this passion against people for their treatment of the Apaches. But even later he carried that bitterness and it really took him down a poor path of life. Yeah. And Moody doesn't go into all that detail, but if you study more about the history of Geronimo's later life, it's definitely there. And his autobiography, I'm sure it would be available online even to read. I'm not sure I would put that in front of a child because of his slant on things, sure. but I'm I'm sure it would be interesting to read. You, you're absolutely right. Ralph's ability to tell our children that story in a way that does not scandalize them is really excellent. A bit like the Stephen Meter books that we were talking about for our historical fiction episode. Um, the ability to tell really hard things that are scandalous but in a way that does not scandalize our child. As Margie McAllister, the author of the Mismantle books, says, sometimes these authors have to do things that cause growth rings in our children, like growth rings in a tree. They stretch our children. They make our children uncomfortable with truths that are uncomfortable, but they do it in such a way that strengthens the trunk of the tree and allows it to grow. So what about you, Jeanette? (laughs) Your turn. What did you, what book did you pick and why? So I picked Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. It's a book written by Henry Castor. And Henry Castor, I found out, is to me just the epitome of a author of a living book. He knew a lot mm. about one period of, and, and really loved to write war books. So he had a real interest in writing war books, but especially writing them for children mm. And I think mm. he, he, he was a soldier himself, and um, I think he really understood the topic well, and I think he gave an incredibly fair treatment of war. And I, I, I mean, I've never 
heard presented so well in a children's book, this view of, you know, what is a just war? Was this a war that everybody wow. was behind? What were the reasons behind the war? And I think it's very applicable to today when we look at people yeah. who are kind of stirring up, you know, um, reasons for going to war to look at and see, okay, what was happening back then and and what was really going on. So I really mm. love that about the book. Um, I think Mr. Castor gave such a great background of the book and what was happening in the United States, what was happening in Cuba at the time. And it's funny because mm. this war was one of the few wars, the Spanish-American War was one of the few wars that really was very controversial. And even as people look back on it today saying, was this a just war? Should we have entered it? Mm -hmm. Why did we get involved? And of course, the main reason we got involved, I mean, everybody was kind of spoiling for a war because one, they wanted mm -hmm. to change the topic from what was happening economically and with all the unrest with labor unions. And they thought, let's turn the page on that and do and talk about something more exciting. It was also called the newspaper <laughs> men's war because the two main newspapers of the day were really wanting to write about war. It would just make, it would just sell far mm. more papers. So um, mm -hmm. that was another reason. And then of course um, there were countries uh, in Europe who had um, colonies, like the French had colonies and the English had colonies. And, you know, the the saying that the sun never set on the, on the British Empire was because they had colonies all around the world. And so America, mm -hmm. after, after fighting the, the Civil War and ending that, they thought, okay, it's time for us to get some colonies. We need to have some something going on. And so they looked mm -hmm. at, they didn't want to fight France because she was too powerful and they didn't want to fight England. Um, either because they'd done that twice already, and so they thought, well, we can <laughs> we can beat Spain. Spain was kind of a poor country. They knew they didn't have a great navy. They didn't have a, a really great army, and at the time, Spain was really being very cruel to the Cuban. And so um, it's kind of like we went in to sort of save, uh, you know, the native Cubans from the terrible, horrible Spaniards was sort of the the going story. But then when our battleship, the Maine was just, you know, checking in on Cuba, not really trying to start a war or anything, it was blown up. And that really catapulted us literally into the, into the sure. war. So I thought uh, he did just an excellent job of presenting that. And then of course, Theodore Roosevelt, the person he was, it's very much like, um, like, like Sherry said, I, I adore Theodore Roosevelt. He's one of my heroes. <laughs> I have an entire bookcase of books about him, have read most of them, mm. not all of them, but it's funny. I had not read this landmark. And wow. so when I thought, well, I'll do an American landmark on Theodore Roosevelt because I've been wanting to read it. And I thought this will be a great impetus to read it. And, and it was. But because I know a lot about Theodore Roosevelt, I, I felt like um, this book gave a very, very really wonderful portrayal of him and just what an interesting person he was. I mean, he started out in the New York Assembly and then he went off to be a rancher out West where he made a lot of connections, you know, with, with um, people out West. And then he went back to New York and became the police commissioner. So I don't know if anybody watches Blue Bloods. It's it's one of those few, say Blue Bloods. One of the few shows I watch. I don't watch many, but I watch that one. And um, every scene you see the police commissioner of New York City 
in that show with a big a, portrait of Theodore yeah. Roosevelt. And he looks a little bit like Theodore Roosevelt. He, and I think he, he stands. Tom Selleck stands yes, like him. He I think tries it's to. Intentional. I think it's intentional. <laughs> but um, when you read about, I've read books about him as police commissioner and they're just fascinating. And when you read about mm. things like that, you just see what kind of a man Theodore Roosevelt was. So after police commissioner, then he was governor of New York. Then he was um, undersecretary of the Navy, and he resigned his position as undersecretary of the Navy to go and fight with the Rough Riders, of which, of course, he largely gathered himself. So I wanted to read the description of the Rough Riders because I thought it was just a wonderful ragtag army that, um, had, you know, that kind of represented a lot of aspects of Theodore Roosevelt's life. So it says most of the Rough Riders were cowboys and Indians. Some were college athletes and sportsmen. Many Rough Riders could track a panther or a murderer across miles of bare desert, but could not write their names. Others were highly educated and spoke several languages. The Rough Riders from the Eastern Ivy League colleges, of course, Theodore Roosevelt was a graduate of Harvard, had played football, rode in crews, or walloped baseballs and polo balls. The regiment also was sprinkled with adventurers from England, Germany, Canada, Sweden, and Australia. Four troopers were preachers of God who decided to lay down their Bibles and pick up rifles. A few of this remarkable regiment were poets. A few were cattle rustlers. So you can just imagine, <laughs> right, um, this group of men. Now, they were all in different companies. They didn't all mix completely. But still, they, they all supported one another and were very much, you know, rough riders. I mean, they all dressed the same, which I thought was interesting. I thought this book would really appeal to boys very much. It really gives the um, perspective of how you game a battle and how you game a war. And super well done. It explained the different generals. And, you know, he... he uh, Theodore Roosevelt was a colonel in this battle, but he wasn't in charge. He wished he could be in charge, but uh, he wasn't in charge. And so he had to wait for his orders as well. And that sometimes um, led to some kind of amusing little scenes because he's not exactly the most patient of men, Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> I wanted to read a couple more descriptions of men who were uh, in the Rough Riders. So one was Bucky O'Neill. He left his job as mayor of the town of Prescott, Arizona, to join the regiment. He'd been a sheriff who hunted bandits and fought Apaches, the fierce, fiercest Indians of the southwestern deserts. But daredevil though he was, Bucky read both French and English classical literature and liked poetry. He was an unusual man, even in an unusual regiment. There was another man called Benjamin Franklin Daniels was like the hard-boiled peace officer you might expect of the Wild West. He only had one ear. The other had been chewed off in a fight. So you can see just what interesting men wow. were part of this regiment. And a lot of them yeah. were kind of war adventurers. They, they thought, man, life is just not very exciting in New York City. I'm going to join this, you know, Rough Rider gang and, and really liven my life up. And they didn't know really what they were <laughs> in for. But I think Castro does such an excellent job of showing just um, – the logistics of war as well, like getting men from one place to another was really hard. There was one instance mm -hmm. where um, Theodore Roosevelt and his his regiment were waiting to, they, they were, and this is so funny, they all thought the war was going to be over before they got there because things were moving so fast. And they Spain, Spain was truly, truly outmanned and outgunned in this war. So they were afraid that the United States was just going to fight it 
quick and end it before any of the Rough Riders could even get to Cuba. Now, the description of the war I thought was super interesting, this charge up San Juan Hill. There was another skirmish right before that where a lot of men, eight men were killed, actually, of the Rough Riders, and a lot were wounded. And mm -hmm. I think that was the the time when a lot of men realized, hey, this is not fun and games. You know, this is this is war and we could get hurt. Well, yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. Castor did a really great job of, of showing that and um, and mm -hmm. yet showing that the men still, you know, um, stepped up. They were courageous. When Theodore Roosevelt mm -hmm. said charge, they charged. He was the only one on a horse. I didn't realize that, even though this was a ca mm. cavalry unit. Theodore Rose, they did not, they all had horses back in Tampa, but they were not allowed to bring them to Cuba. So this was a cavalry oh. regiment that wasn't really on horseback. <laughs> Only Theodore Roosevelt had his horses. His little horse was named Texas. And, um, but no one else had They're a horse. They're rough riders. Yes, without. Riders who yes, are riderless. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I did not know that. That was something new to me. But it was funny. Theodore Roosevelt had a very bright blue polka dotted kerchief around his neck during the charge up San Juan Hill. And that is the one thing all the men remember is seeing him just gallantly, you know, going back and forth along the lines of the men and um, wow. cheering them on. And they, they loved him and were so loyal to him, mm. you know, during the fight and after the fight as well. And what a picture that must have been for Teddy Roosevelt to be on horseback when everybody else is on foot. It means that he's the only target. That too. A bullet grazed his elbow. I mean, these Spanish, they were very good shots and um, there were lots mm -hmm. of snipers and they fought a very tactile tactical war, you know, against the Americans. And the Americans mm -hmm. kind of had to get their plan as they were going because they really didn't know what they were up against exactly. And they changed their tactics. You know, I mean, it was, I thought it was very well done. Well, that sounds like a very exciting book. I do, I don't think I have that one as a matter of fact. So I need to go looking for it because... That's one we are going to love in this house, I'm sure. <laughs> if I didn't already have an interest in Teddy Roosevelt, Frank Reagan guaranteed that I do. So. <laughs> I don't think any of us were excited to read war books. Right. It seems that it could be either gruesome mm -hmm. or dry military maneuvers that would be very difficult to read through. But it seems that the landmark editors and um, – Bennett Sir found authors that could tell these stories, like Colonel Red Reader and mm -hmm. Henry Castor, mm -hmm. and some of the some of the writers of like medical corps yes. heroes that tell it in a way that is exciting and interesting and makes you want to know more. Because otherwise, I I know a lot of people thought I'm not sure I want to read medical corps heroes, or I'm not sure I want to read combat right. nurses, or not even sure I want to try to track those down and buy them. Because I mean. Right. What are they going to contribute to the story of World War II? We, we did that in school. Check that box. Moving on. And then you read them and go, oh, my goodness. <laughs> this is like the most human aspect of the war. This is one of the most important pieces of that understanding that we do not otherwise get. And, and how else would we have found our way in if not for Wyatt Lassing game? <laughs> so. Well, Tanya, thank you for popping in. Sherry, Sandy, and Jeanette, it was nice having you this afternoon. We really appreciate you spending your time with us. Ladies, thank you so much for contributing to this 
really essential episode. So far in all of our episodes, we we have, and if you look at the top 10 of our downloads, um, the landmarks are always in that top somewhere. Um, maybe not all of them all the time, obviously, but the landmark episodes do tend to be fan favorites. And I understand why, because I think that these are most worthy books. They are also um, maybe not intuitive to everybody. Um, definitely, they weren't always intuitive to me. And I think mamas really appreciate the opportunity to get a preview of these titles so they know which ones to hunt for, which ones are available, and what to do with them. So we really appreciate the fact that you've gone and read the books for us so that you could talk about them in this way and we could continue to share with mamas another great resource that they can layer into their homeschools. So thank you so much for being here and friends next time on the Landmark series, we will do the World Landmarks, and we will have Kathleen Seeger, we will have Christy Stansfield, and we will have Mary Schubert join us to share with us their World Landmark favorites. And you can hold your breath and wait and see, is Christy bringing another pirate book? Probably. So we invite you to come back and join us again please check out the show notes. There's a ton of goodness in there, links to all the things. And join us in the free, free friends, free, free BiblioGuides online community. It is an alternative to social media or an add-on to social media, depending upon how you use your online time. But join us in Mighty Networks where it's only about the books. It's all the books, all the time. All of us are there and you can come and chat with us. Tell us which landmark books you're loving or liking and uh, or tell us what you thought about the episode. So thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, friends. 